So my name's Brent, if I haven't met you before. There's lots of people here that I won't have met. Um, I'm actually on church council here and, and you might see me floating around. Uh, I think my, my daughter, Evelyn, uh, must have picked up that I was, you know, it's been a while since daddy's gotten up and spoken. Um, in fact, probably not in her lifetime, so, or just barely. And uh, so she must have picked up that I might be feeling a bit nervous because as we're getting in the car, she had collected about four or five uh, rocks from our driveway. And uh, she said, here you go, Daddy, you can take these and you can show these to the people at church <laughs> and show them all the different colours and all the different shapes. So I just picked out my favourite, actually. Uh, it's a lovely black sort of smooth thing. So there you go. Thank you, Evelyn. That was actually really helpful. Um, I might just quickly pray and then, uh, and then we can just launch right in. Uh, Lord God, as we open up your word um, and we take a look through and, and think about what you have to say to us, uh, we just pray that we'd approach it with open hearts, open minds, um, and a willingness to hear from you. Uh, help us to, I guess, relax into your presence now and uh, yeah, just enjoy this time of fellowship. Amen. So I've been extremely privileged uh, to um, be studying my Masters of Divinity. So I'm at uh, Melbourne School of Theology, MST, where the, where the Kimbers teach and a few different people uh, attend. And uh, thanks to the um, enduring patience of my wife, Rach, and, and the kids, I can kind of go there and do a subject a semester and just chip away at my Masters. And uh, it's only been about seven years so far and there's only about 77 to go, and it's, uh, it's, it's actually really enjoyable. Um, slow, but really enjoyable. And this last semester just gone, I, um, I was studying the Pentateuch, so the first five, five books of the Bible. And, uh, and so when Stuart said, you know, you can pick anything you want to talk about, uh, I thought sharing something from that might be, might be really nice. So that's what I'm going to do. So we had Stephanie read it out. That was really good. I, and, and in a minute, David's going to throw it up for us. And uh, I just thought it's a, bit of a, it's a little bit of a longer chunk um, for those looking it up now, Deuteronomy 30, 11 to 20. It's a little bit of a longer chunk. And because we're going to go through it, you know, a little bit kind of systematically, um, I thought this would be helpful. Yeah, there it is. This would be helpful just so that as I'm talking, if you get bored, you've got something to do, which is read. So that's good. So this is going to be like a, like a thing. Um, as a total, like, let me just step out of sermon mode for a minute. If you get the chance to do any um, theological study, if you're kind of considering, is this for me, um, I'd say just give it a shot. I, I'm doing it so slowly. Um, I've, I've actually, I think I'm the longest serving student currently at MST. My, my card says I've been there since 2009. Um, there was a little break, but uh, I've seen people come, complete the course, and graduate, uh, and I'm like 75% of the way through. But I, I, couldn't, I couldn't endorse it highly enough. There are things that I get to uh, engage with, ideas I get to engage with, um, a, a breadth and variety of Christian experience that I get to engage with that I simply couldn't do at home by myself or, or even, you know, there's some variety in a church context, but... Um, I think Bible College has only been matched by my time at OM for kind of exposure to 
the broader church. Um, so I just couldn't, couldn't recommend it highly enough. That's the end of the ad break. Um, so I've been, <laughs> I've been studying the Pentateuch. Uh, there's a lot to this. We're going to pick up um, a particular, uh, basically the very end. Um, and because of it's the Bible, um, everything kind of interrelates throughout. So there are things that I'm going to rush through, things that I'm going to almost ignore. And you might think, oh, how does he make that connection? Or why is he saying that? If you have those moments, I would totally love anyone to come up and ask me any questions afterwards or send me an email or whatever. Good, like 50% chance I won't actually know the answer. No, uh, if I don't, I'd be happy to share that moment of, of mystery with you. But um, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd love to talk about this more. I recognize it's a bit kind of limited in what we can engage in this morning. Um, why don't we start with some context? So this is, this is Moses speaking, and this is kind of like his last um, exhortation to the Israel nation. It's his last encouragement to them, his last sort of big hurrah. My lecturer called it his altar call. Um, there's a few chapters that come after this, but they're a bit more, uh, there's a song and there's a bit of handover to, to Joshua um, before Moses kind of says, you know, here you go, here's the nation, it's all yours. Um, this is his, his last big address to the nation of saying, um, here's the thing I want to leave you with. Uh, Israel's been on a journey through Genesis and all the way up to here of from, from Abraham receiving these promises that his, um, his offspring or his, his descendants are going to become a nation and they're going to inhabit the promised land. There's been this long journey over generations and generations uh, to where they are now. They're, they're standing on the precipice of history Basically, they're standing outside the promised land, about to go in, um, and this is the, the sort of last thing. Moses is not going with them. Um, you'll remember, you know, earlier when they, they had a chance to take the promised land once before, they sent the spies in. Stuart, you know, preached on this. They sent the spies in, and uh, the spies came back and said, oh, there's giants in the land. So they went, oh, not for us. Um, and so part of the... Um, judgment, if you like, or the consequences of that was that uh, God said, well, none of this generation are going in. And Moses, that includes you. Um, so Moses is tracked with Israel from, from Egypt. You know, they had the, the, the liberation gods, all uh, his miracles and miraculous things out, Red Sea, parting the Red Sea. Through that, uh, they received the law. They wandered through the desert for 40 years. They've had a pillar of fire, a pillar of cloud. He has tracked with them through probably some of the most momentous points of their history. And now they're about to go on and finally claim their God-given destiny. And this is the last thing he gets to say to them before they do that. Now, it's worth noting that, yes, it's been this amazing time, but there's been, for every sort of um, miraculous a uh, wonderful event that God has come down and, and impacted Israel in a really particular way. Hello. Uh, no, that's fine. Um, there's been almost a, a counterpoint, a point of Israel rejecting God or, or choosing against him. So yes, they get the law, but also they worship the golden calf. Uh, yes, they have these um, miraculous interventions with other nations, but also they 
intermarry and intermix and there's judgment for that. There's always this kind of back and forth, hot and cold, love-hate sort of thing going on. And um, it's, it's basically Moses coming to them and saying, you need to make a choice. Uh, it's, a, it's a reasonably famous, famous speech, so some of you might even be familiar with it. Um, this is the backdrop against which Moses speaks. So when he says, choose life or choose death, um, that's what he's saying. He's saying, you, you need to make a choice. And obviously, he's imploring them to choose rightly. Uh, one of the things that's very important to kind of, for, for Moses to get out of the way before he presents them with the choice is to say that this choice is, is 100% accessible. Um, you know, you don't need to say, uh, oh, you know, we need to access this special heavenly wisdom. Who's going to go to heaven and bring it down for us? He says, no, nope, don't need to do that. It's right here. Uh, oh, but, but we need the wisdom of, of, of other lands and who's going to go far over the sea? Who's going to go far away and, and bring back to us uh, the knowledge of God? He says, no, nope, don't need that either. Um, it's right here. It's in your hearts. It's on your lips. He's actually almost quite matter-of-fact about it. He's taking away any sort of perceived barriers um, or, as some people like to call them, excuses. Um, he's, he's just clearing the way so that they can say, okay, it's a free choice. Whatever you choose here, Israel, actually, I'm going to die. I'm not going with you. It's in your hands. You need to make the choice. No more am I leading you and kind of shepherding you along. You need to own this and make a choice for yourself. Um, and I think this kind of speaks to us. It's really easy for us to uh, throw up some barriers when we're dealing with God. Um, we say, uh, uh, I'm not spiritual enough. I'm not educated enough. I haven't been to Bible college. Uh, I, I don't know when, when, when I'm at small group or when I'm at church, I don't feel like I know as much as the person sitting next to me. I haven't memorized enough verses. I haven't been good enough. I've, I've not grown up in a Christian family. My life's been a bit rough. Um, I'm not sure. I don't know what's going on. I have some doubts. Uh, we have all these things that we kind of put up and they're valid things, you know, to engage with, but they are in no way barriers from us interacting with God. Uh, then we have a choice. Every, every person has a choice to say, choose for God, choose against God. And um, that is a free choice, if you like. You could imagine um, Moses is kind of, he's going to set out this cosmic buffet. It's uh, the very first Sizzlers and, uh, or Smoggies, for those of you who prefer. Um, and there's two tables. He's got two tables. One is the, the buffet of goodness and life and beautiful things. And the other is the buffet of death and evil. And he kind of pulls back the red velvet rope and says, okay, make a choice. Where do you want to eat from? Where are you going to sit? Um, it's really that, that sort of clear black and white presentation from Moses' perspective. Um, make a choice. So it's a free choice. Um, he even says, you know, see, I've set before you uh, life and good, death and evil. And we're going to explore both those choices a bit. Um, before we kind of continue into that part of it, uh, I think it's worth kind of bringing your attention to something that is a bit um, invisible to modern eyes. Um, and that's a little bit of the, the format of, of this. Uh, and and there's uh, a 
there's a hidden feature, uh, an Easter egg. Um, so in the ancient Near East, uh, when you had two nations, um, especially a powerful nation and a lesser nation, and they're, they're making a treaty, they're coming to an arrangement, there was a particular format that they would use and it would include certain elements and, and it followed a pattern. And uh, that's called a suzerain vassal treaty. And if you're wondering what's a suzerain vassal treaty or what's a suzerain, what's a vassal? Suzerain, aside from being an exceptional Scrabble word that will really cause some arguments, because um, you get the S, so you can build it off something, and the Z, which is, you know, 10 points, obviously. Um, a suzerain is uh, like an archaic word for a superpower, an empire. Um, if we could teleport current politics back in time, China would be a suzerain, America would be a suzerain. It's, a, it's an empire, powerful kingdom. Um, they're the, the, the dominant party in this treaty. And then uh, what's a vassal? If, if you have any interest in sort of medieval knights and feudal society, a vassal is, um, is the weaker party who is now becoming subject to the stronger party. So um, in this case, it could be a, a tribe or a weak nation or a small kingdom, and they're retaining some degree of autonomy, but they know they now live under this superpower. They're not absorbed into it. It's not an invasion. It's a treaty where we're going to let you be however you need to agree to certain stipulations. So the format to this, um, which is kind of littered throughout here, and actually Deuteronomy itself follows this format, and it appears throughout the Old Testament. Um, often when there's a covenant, it will have elements of this. So when you start to see it, you kind of, oh, there's a few of them throughout. Um, you might be missing a couple of elements here. Some of them happen in the, in the preceding verses. Um, but uh, I encourage you, whenever you get a chance, um, read Deuteronomy 30 in its entirety. There's only, um, what, 10 more verses before this. It's not very long. Um, and it really builds a picture. So what are, the, what are the elements? There's a preamble in which uh, there'll be a declaration of who the suzerain is. What is their title? So, um, you know, it might be, so, you know, the great and mighty Hittite empire or whoever. Um, in this case, uh, you know, in Deuteronomy, it'd be like a sovereign God, you know, the Lord Almighty, this sort of thing, the title of the person who's the dominant party. And then there's a history um, of all the good and powerful things that the suzerain has done for the vassal. So again, often in a Deuteronomy context, uh, it's, uh, you know, the Lord who brought you out of Israel, who did this, who did that. There's a reminder looking back and saying, you know, this powerful, good entity and what it has done for you. Um, so there's that side of it. Then there'll be the stipulations. This is the, the more contractual side of it. What are, what are you as the vassal going to do for the suzerain? What is the agreement, the, the little bits and pieces that uh, is the contract of this treaty? And you have obligations that you need to fulfill. And then there are witnesses to the treaty. Now, if this was two um, pagan kingdoms, uh, their witnesses, their divine witnesses would be their gods. And this kind of goes a little bit to explaining uh, in part why Israel couldn't have treaties with other nations. Because as a monotheistic nation, how can they sign up to a treaty that says, uh, 
yes, this is being witnessed by Baal and Yahweh. How is that going to work for them? They would have to acknowledge and, and uh, accept the, the, actually the dominance of the other God because Israel, small nation, they're generally going to be the, the vassal and there were uh, more, than, more than just witnesses, not just saying, oh, that's your religion, this is my religion. It's saying, actually, your God is, uh, is going to punish us if, if we don't do the right thing and because they're all powerful and mighty and, and they've done these amazing things for us. And uh, so it would really involve uh, acknowledging and absorbing some of that religious culture and, and worship. And, and it would be ongoing for the life of the treaty. They would need to read it once a year and remember the great things Baal or whoever had done for them. So you can kind of get a picture of why, even from the outset, there's a, there's a non-negotiable aspect to Israel striking treaties with other nations. Um, so there'd be these divine witnesses. Now, in this case, which I think is really interesting, the divine witnesses, which is almost at the end there, is the, the heavens and the earth. Because um, God's not going to call on another God who's greater than him to witness his treaty with Israel. He's the, he's the ultimate power. So for him, his witnesses are actually below him, which I think is really interesting and kind of is a little um, tweak of what was the, the usual ancient Near East format um, to, uh, to tweak towards showing God's sovereignty and showing his, his unilateral power, if you like. He doesn't need to appeal to anyone. And then the last thing that they would have would be blessings and curses. So you've got the stipulations, your obligations of what you need to do. And then there's kind of, if you do it, here's all the great stuff that's going to happen. And if you don't, here's all the bad stuff that's going to happen. And typically it wouldn't be, um, you know, if you don't do what we say, we're going to pick up our army, we're going to march over and we're going to kill you all. Uh, it would be our God is going to come and smite your crops and destroy your land. And it would be a divine punishment. Now, that's not saying they wouldn't pick up the army, go over there and kill everyone. Sure, that's always an option. Um, you never want to, like, hedge yourself in and say, you know, we're not going to do that. Uh, but that, the format of the treaty was that this would be a divine punishment. So this goes away to helping us understand why these elements are here and, and what they're doing, um, because this, this is a, a summary of God's covenantal agreements with Israel which form his treaty with them, of which Israel have obligations. And there are consequences, both good and bad, for those obligations, whether they follow them or not. Those obligations are the law that Moses gave them or that God gave them. Uh, and so that Moses is saying, these are the options. You've, you've agreed to this treaty. You accepted this. You need to choose what your consequences are going to be, if you like. Choose life or choose death. Um, and again, he's obviously imploring them to choose life. So what does that, what does that look like? What is, what is the action of choosing life or choosing death? What does that mean? It's a lovely uh, slogan. You know, you could put it on a bumper sticker, but what does that mean for them? What does that mean for us? Uh, I have this really vivid memory of when I was in primary school, in about grade five, and um, it's recess. I reach into my bag and mom has packed me a delicious apple. It's a Fuji apple. And I remember that very well because we didn't buy Fuji apples that much. And they're really nice. 
So imagine, I should have brought an apple. Wouldn't that have been a great prop? Um, imagine I've got this brilliant red apple. Uh, if you've never eaten a Fuji apple before, they're very sweet, very popular, um, very red. The inside is brilliant, crisp white. They're so good. And so I take this apple out, I bite into it, and my teeth sink into the flesh about three or four millimeters, and then it collapses in my mouth because some worm or something has gotten inside and it's turned the whole interior of the apple into this putrid, rotten puree. And it is foul, disgusting, awful. I have unfortunately a history of having disgusting things in my mouth and this ranks in about the top four. Uh, it's just not good. It's rotten, it's perished. Uh, that's the image I want you to hold in your head for a moment, and I apologize for those with weak stomachs. Um, yeah, that really put me off apples for a while, actually. Um, yeah, not nice, really rotten inside. Moses lays out for us a progression of what happens when we make these choices, and both for life and death, it starts from the inside and and moves outward. Um, if we choose against God, uh, we start down a, down a path, and the progression of that path is the rotting from the inside out. Um, particularly for Israel, they are God's people. He, they have signed up for this, if you like. They, they have ad adopted an identity and a relationship with God that has a purpose. And if they rebel against him, they are really acting in the exact opposite way of that purpose. They're really, um, what's the word? Uh, they're destroying themselves. And uh, he's, Moses is really strong on that. Um, so there's this progression. He says, um, first, your hearts turn away. So we start from the inside. First, the heart turns away. And then we stop hearing God. Now, we use the word hearing. That's totally valid. Um, there's a, there's a bit of additional meaning. So uh, where it says obey further up, you know, proclaim to us that we may obey it, that's the same word. So obey and hearing are inextricably linked. It's not hearing like uh, you're listening to me now. It's hearing with an imperative. There is, a, there is an expectation that when you hear this, you're doing it. When you're doing it, you're hearing it. Uh, you can kind of see the relationship there. Kind of like when I say to my kids, you're not listening to me. The sound is going into their ears. They can't avoid that, but they're not doing the thing that I want them to do. They're not hearing me. Um, so when you stop, when your heart turns away, you stop hearing God. And then we are drawn away and we become the subject of other gods. Now, drawn away again, perfectly valid, but it sounds like an enticement, doesn't it? It sounds like, oh, I saw something over there and it looked pretty good, so I was drawn away. Um, but it's actually, again, just one of those words that can have a little bit of extra meaning buried behind it, and uh, it can just as validly mean driven away, banished. Um, so in those 10 verses that are above the passage that you can see there, um, it, talks about, it talks about Israel being driven out of the land, um, and it's the same word. So drawn away, driven away, it's not, it's not an enticement and a choice, it's, uh, it's almost like you're getting the boot, um, but you've brought this on yourself. Um, 
And this becomes an absolute literal reality for Israel. So you fast forward, you know, a few books, a few hundred years, um, they're getting exiled. Other nations come in and drive them out of the land. Their kingdom shrinks. There is, there is a driving out. Um, so this, this becomes a reality for them. Now, other gods, for Israel, that's a, that's a literal thing. There are other people worshipping other deities on their doorstep all the time. And uh, if you become subject to another nation, you become subject to another god. And subject sounds like, a, like you know, we think, again, medieval terminology, oh, bow to the king, oh, it's very nice, we go off and go home. But you could think subject is in servitude, um, you know, you are enslaved to. Enslaved is, is probably, um, it's a very strong language. I'd say not, not inappropriate um, to use language that strong. Um, in our case, we don't have to worry so much about becoming uh, subject to um, another god in a, in a, uh, a deity sense or, or I'm not, you know, at risk of Baal erecting a, a, an altar outside my house or something. Um, however, there are things that we do become enslaved to when we, when we uh, choose against God um, very, in a very real sense. Uh, we make an opposite choice towards other values, um, other purposes for our life, um, other things that we adopt that, that dictate our life's direction. Um, could be our ambition, could be our personal pleasure, could be uh, the pursuit of money or power, um, and not even in the in the global I'm going to conquer the world sense, but in the within my family, within my workplace, uh, within my friendship group, this sort of I will be the dominant party. Um, it could be uh, sort of self-obsession. It could be any number of value systems that we might adopt uh, in the absence of our identity in Christ. And it all leads to death. It all rots us from the inside out. It all leads to perishing like that apple. Um, and that's reinforced that that inside out uh, set. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? But that inside out paradigm uh, is 100% uh, reflected in choosing life as well. So that's the that's the mindset we have to keep. Is it's not it's not about just our outward actions. It's about what's going on in here. So if we kind of step up a bit from from choosing death and we walk it back to choosing life. What does that mean? Well, Moses is really clear. He says it means loving God means walking in his ways, obeying his commandments. Um, and sometimes that second point, you know, obeying his commandments can really trip us up, you know, particularly when we're looking at an Old Testament book and uh, it's about the law. And so we go, okay, commandments, the law. Um, should I be eating shellfish? Can I get a tattoo? Um, how many types of fabric am I wearing? And we get a bit tripped up in the complexity of that discussion. And there is a valid discussion to be had there about how do we as Christians relate to the Old Testament law. But I don't want to unpack that now. Uh, and I think a really nice shorthand has been provided to us in the Gospels. So in Matthew 22, someone asked Jesus, you know, which is the most important of the laws? And he says... The most important commandment 
in the law. So teacher, which is the great, greatest commandment in the law, he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and all the prophets. So if you are getting tripped up by, okay, Moses is saying, um, I've got to follow, follow the commandments and he's just giving them the law, but I don't feel like I should be bound to Old Testament law, so what do I do with that? That's your guidepost to start with. Love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. So what's the result? Well, there's some specific promises here that are connected to choosing life. Um, and they relate to the Israelites in the promised land. And uh, they are very, they're, they're quite literal promises. And we should beware just kind of picking them up and slapping them into a modern context and going, okay, it says here, we'll multiply. So if we do this, uh, our church will grow bigger, for example, because it uses the word multiply. That would be uh, probably stretching the text in a way that's, that's not meant to be. But um, we can take some principles from this. So for them, uh, they're quite literally standing outside the promised land and quite literally they're going to go in and take possession of it and quite literally they will grow as a nation and they will have peace and prosperity. Uh, you know, that's a real physical thing for them. Um, in our case, uh, well, I guess worth understanding about that is that the promised land is linked to those, that Abrahamic covenant. It's linked to their purpose as a nation. Um, it's all inextricably tied to their identity as Israel and the, the thing that they've been journeying towards for hundreds of years. So if we start to look at it like that, if we start to look at the principle of um, in choosing life, we choose to have the identity that God has given us um, expressed through us more fully, um, we get to experience our relationship with God in a more vibrant, more healthy, more uh, open uh, sort of way. And, and ultimately, we get to find the truest expression of ourself because we're made by God, we're known most by Him, and only He can really unlock the person He's made us to be. Not that it's about us, but in terms of that, what are the, what are the outworkings of choosing life? Um, then we start to find a bit of, uh, of what we're looking for. So, again, it's not, uh, it, it starts from the heart, but that's not to say it's a, it's a solely internalized um, faith that sits inside our heart, uh, shielded from the outside world, shielded from our actions, and it's a little place that we mentally go to sometimes. Um, it can't be disconnected. He's super clear about this. Uh, you know, in, in choosing death, it's, it's not being obedient, turning away. Uh, in choosing life, it's walking in obedience. It's hearing and doing. Uh, there is a 100% correlation between the internal faith and the outward actions. And that's really uh, important to note. Um, the result is our blessing, which is wonderful, um, which living in the promised land for us as a Christian is, like I said, it's that promise of freedom, of wholeness, restoration, forgiveness, um, and obviously not reflected here, but it's the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That's, that's an amazing thing um, and totally unique to, to being a Christian. Um, so we take that. 
and we take these, these two options. We've got the table of life here, the table of death at our buffet, um, and we've got the, the, the sort of the, the rope's been drawn back, you know, all those, those uh, barriers that we might put up to say, oh, I can't, I can't do this yet. I, I'm not quite good enough. I'm, I'm not quite educated enough. I'm not quite informed enough. Uh, I, I don't have the means to make a free choice. I'm somehow inhibited. Moses just shuts that down and he says, no, it's a free choice. It's open. You can make the choice. It's up to you. You do it. And then he implores us to choose life. Um, we are also presented with that same choice, right? So for us, uh, yes, there's no, um, there's no nation, there's no uh, theocracy that we're a part of. Uh, but as a church, as a small group, as a family unit, as an individual, we stand at these moments and we get to say, okay, will I choose life and goodness? Will I choose death and evil? Will we choose life and goodness? Will we choose death and evil? Which way are we going to go? Will we hold fast to God or will we not? Will we choose otherwise? Um, and so just like Moses says, um, you know, he, he exhorts him, choose life. Um, he does the same to us across history. He implores us to choose life. Um, so I just want to read this last passage from him and then I'll pray. He says, and so as I pray, try and have these words roll over in your mind. He says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him. For he is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. Let me pray for us. Lord God, um, it's an amazing thing that you have set this plain choice before us. And we don't need a guru to go up to heaven. We don't need a wise person to come to us from across the ocean to show us the way to you, to show us what you want from us in our life. It's plain and simple. It's written on our hearts. It's on our lips. And it's to choose life, to choose you, to choose an allegiance to you. And we pray that in making that choice each and every day, that it will be reflected in our life, in our actions, in our dealings with other people, in the values that we hold for ourselves and the purpose we set for our lives, that we would choose you, choose life, choose goodness. We thank you so much for the freedom to do that. And we just thank you for the freedom that comes after choosing that. The freedom that you set in motion in us, the forgiveness, the restoration. I just pray for all of us, Lord, that as your words sit in our hearts and rest on us, um, that we would be thinking, what are the ways that we can choose life today? How are we going to do that? Lord, we love you, and we pray that you'd be honoured by our lives.
Amen.